0: Hello and welcome back to In Good Company, a podcast for working women with me, Atega Uagba. We're back from our summer break and I've got a brilliant lineup of some really amazing women for you. But before I dive into today's episode, I wanted to announce a few small changes to the show. First up, the main one is that instead of being broadcast as a monthly show, In Good Company episodes will now be aired as an eight part series of weekly episodes starting today. I'm doing that for all sorts of reasons that I won't bother boring you with, but that does mean you get to enjoy my dulcet tones in your ears with slightly more regularity than before. Change number two is that Inga Company is no longer an NTS, which means from now on, new episodes will be available to listen to as soon as they drop via Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is you usually listen to your podcasts. I'm still figuring out this whole independent podcasting thing, so do bear with me if there are any technical glitches along the way, although hopefully this will be a smoother than smooth transition. And finally, our career agony art segment, Ask Taker, will no longer be a regular segment at the end of each episode, but it's not disappearing entirely. Instead, we'll be having occasional mailbag specials along the way, so please do keep the questions and dilemmas coming in. Okay, now that we've got housekeeping out of the way, on with the show. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with Gia Tolentino, staff writer at The New Yorker, whose debut book, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion, has been one of the most eagerly anticipated books of this year. A razor sharp collection of essays examining contemporary American culture, Trick Mirror addresses the questions you probably hadn't even thought to ask, touching on everything from branded feminism and influencer culture, to the similarities between religion and MDMA and our cultural obsession with the scam. Gia has received praise from literary greats such as Zadie Smith and Rebecca Solnit, who referred to her as the best young essayist at work in the United States, and Trick Mirror debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Gia herself cut her teeth in media, first as contributing editor at The Hairpin, moving on to become deputy editor at feminist website Jezebel, before The New Yorker came calling three years ago. I've been a fan of her writing for a really long time, so I was delighted to be able to have a one-on-one conversation with her when she visited London as part of her book tour last month. Here she is. I
1: think the impulse for writing it was just this sense that I had immediately after the 2016 election in the States that was just like, you know, this thing that I have always wanted to do as a person and as a writer, which is make sense of things and understand the moral stakes of things and understand the systems of our world and how they function and how... We create ourselves, you know, with them at our back. This thing that I try to do and want to do, I was like, what is the purpose of it? You know, like, what what does it mean to make sense of the world right now? The election prompted me to write the book in that I understood that I was going to be anxious and thinking about structures and thinking about morality and sort of full of self-loathing, you know, for the next four years at a minimum. And one way to turn self-loathing and anxiety into some productive causes to write a book. Mm-hmm. So I had been editing for the internet for several years before that on women's websites. And I had gotten sick of, you know, that thing that's especially kind of endemic in online writing where at the end of the piece, someone will write something and it'll be about all these messy ideas, you know, the kind of productively messy ideas. And the, the piece will sort of wrap up that's like, but in the end, Here's why I was, you know, justified, you know, or like, but in the end, if we pull together, then it'll be okay, or whatever. In my head, I'd been telling myself, like, operating by this private zen cone of try to write strong arguments with no conclusions for several years. You know, basically, I'd been trying to do that since 2014-ish. And... I feel like absolute certainty about what I believe politically and what I, you know, believe morally, but that doesn't really lead to a sense of certainty in real life at all for me. And I wanted my writing to reflect that and not to do the thing that I think is reflexive and natural to do, which is wrap it up and, you know, provide a takeaway because I just don't have that feeling in life and it's and it's hard to render that in writing in a way that could still feel productive.
0: Mm-hmm. I know what you mean. I think that sort of edit note, can you find a kind of more uplifting conclusion? I once yeah. wrote an article about street harassment and mm. a few incidents that I'd had about it. And it was, you know, it was with an editor whose opinions I really respect, but just the needs of the platform that I was writing for right. and the kind of article that it was was so that they were like this is quite a bleak ending because I ended saying I don't really know what to do about this
1: right no one wants you to end on that note
0: yeah and I was like but that is the reality it's the reality and this is how I'm actually talking about it with my female friends like yes people, you know we are struggling to figure a way out of this and there is no positive takeaway and that's always stuck in my mind as something that felt not true to real life right. and actually I think the more natural thing is to not know the answers right
1: but it's it, it is funny that there is something in the nature of writing that you know the whole point right and this is something that I wrestle with you know explicitly in the intro of my book and there on after is we do write to make sense of things right and we communicate to help other people make sense of things and 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 that's a valid and important and like very worthy goal at the same time that I think, especially editing a women's website, I would notice that the gap between how people would speak about things in real life and how we all, you know, how the industries we were in and the publications we worked for would want to present them on the internet, there was this, you know, we'd be sitting at the bar and there'd be no good end. That is the fertile ground, right? The uncertainty. It's sort of like a shared language for that uncertainty seems foundational to whatever is going to happen next, right? But I think we need to sit, it's worth sitting with that uncertainty for as long as we can. And in general, this is something that I think about. I'm really wary of structures that, you know, I, I write about the church, you know, in these terms and sort of the cult of self-optimization in these terms, these things that want to neaten up the situation in a way that is not true. And also about things about the internet that want to make things neater. Like one of the things that I try to do in life to make the internet is such a nightmare. It's so unbearable. One of the only ways I think it's bearable is to try to act the same online as you do off. There's kind of reverse of that, where in online writing things get neater, but in the way people sort of behave online, often like on Twitter, people are so much worse and more annoying and more extreme, like, extreme and petty, and you know just like love to waste their time. And the only way this is all going to be bearable if the internet is going to be intertwined with our life for the, you know the rest of our life we have to try to allow the way we try to be human in real life to really spill over into the internet. Just to me, it seems like the only way, writing and social networks and all
0: these things included. It's so tricky, though, because the things that the internet rewards in terms of attention or clout or likes or even internet Mm -hmm. algorithms is the extreme. Like We've seen it play out with... The elections totally. and the kind of manipulation of, you know, right. political news and all that They're sort of thing. I'm trying to avoid saying yeah. fake news, but yeah. that sort of thing. So, I, you know, I often say to my friends and to friends who are on Twitter, I'm like, Twitter brings out the worst in me, yeah. much as I love it because I find it really educational and I learn a lot and I kind of build communities. It brings out the worst in me. I'm much more critical of other things, other people, yeah. other systems in a way that doesn't feel productive a lot of the time and that's an impulse that I really need to check because I don't think it's what I'm like in real life. That kind of brings me on to one of the first topics I want to talk about which is personal branding because you're kind of talking about the idea of what we're like online versus what we're like offline and I think a recurring Theme both within your book, but also in stuff that I've read that you've written for the New Yorker, is this kind of economy of the self yeah. and the fact that we now live in an age where we have to monetize every last yeah. inch of our personas. And I actually read a really interesting interview with Naomi Klein yeah. a few weeks ago, who wrote No Logo. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know who she is, um, she wrote No Logo twenty years ago, which is this like amazing book that was seminal and it's kind of very anti-capitalism and talking about the way brands have encroached in our lives. And anyway, there was a follow-up interview with her a few weeks ago in The Observer where the topic of what has changed in the 20 years since she published it came up. And she said, the biggest change since No Logo came out is that neoliberalism has created so much precarity that the commodification of the self is now seen as the only route to any kind of economic security. Plus, social media has given us the tools to market ourselves nonstop. Right. And that really echoed something that you've said, which is that an online presence is often a requirement, not only for jobs in the gig economy, but in order to piece together the financial safety net. That was in a New York essay you wrote. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the idea of the personal brand. How do you relate to the idea of a personal brand I mean you're in the midst of promoting a book yeah. so that's a question you mu- that yeah. you must be asking yourself
1: yeah it's a nightmare <laughs> yeah right <laughs> well yeah I I mean this is something that I think about constantly because yeah I do think that it's like so capitalism has required our every spare moment to be monetized Like every hobby, every leisure activity, every, you know, anything we do, like social networks are built around monetizing all of these things. Like our identities, our vacations are monetized by Instagram, you know, even if they are selling ads against it, it's. There's a way in which every spare bit, what we search, you know, our identities are monetized by social networks, even if we're not actively monetizing them, right? So our clicks are being sold and resold as, you know, data packages. And so I think there's a way in which the world has already made the monetization of the self. It's sort of, even if you're not actively participating in it, it's doing it to you. So there's a reflexive thing that's like, well, you might as well do it. I think that selfhood is basically the economic engine of the, of the internet, um, and especially of these social platforms that dominate the internet, there is a way in which, in America especially, as the you know the social safety net has been eroding for decades, wages have been stagnant for decades. You know all these things, and it's sort of like a substitute safety net has become your personal brand, right? And and I say in the book, it's you know it's like this for me, me with all of the security that I now do have, which I have gotten through, as I say on the book, flogging my own selfhood on the internet since I was making $15,000 a year, you know, eight years ago, living in Houston and writing copy about medical devices. And I think there was part of me that understood that there would eventually be some use in rendering myself visible consistently in some way. Yeah. And then it's the same for, you know, personal branding also applies to the person who gets in a bike accident when they're uninsured and they've got to put together a GoFundMe, which is a quarter of all campaigns on GoFundMe in the States, right? are Our medical, act, you know, our medical bills. And so, and, and you have to operate within personal branding, right? You've got to upload your picture. You got to write the story. You got to share it. You got to make it shareable. It's it's such a nightmare. It's like
0: a George Saunders short story. Well, you do use yourself as an example in your writing, or right. you mine your own life—not by any means entirely, because yeah. you talk about so many other things besides yourself. Right, right, right. But you know, your voice and your life experiences are very present in a lot of the work. You They're very create. present, and I use Twitter all the time. I yeah. use social media. Do you feel constrained by that? Because no, the thing not that the thing that I have said, I've talked about. You know, all of my friends have read your book, and we've talked about it a lot. And I, the thing that I said specifically in relation to this topic is it simultaneously made me feel great and terrible. Yeah. Great because I was like, oh, well, it's not just me yeah. who. Is having to play this game, yeah. even though the kind of more radical anti-capitalist second wave feminist within me kind of wants to push against of it. Course. But then the well, pragmatist and- is like, "Well, I live in a capitalist system, right?" And the
1: question is, can you push? I feel all this conflict between the fact that you know much of this book is against monetized selfhood and, and, and trying to analyze the way it corrodes mm-hmm. ourselves. And part of the reason I feel so strongly about this is that I think that what we do to figure out who we are is important. It's like the project of being human and watching it be monetized is like watching, you know, like this incredibly precious in its non-renewable natural resource be stripped away. Because I do think that these things are really important, but at the same time, the more strongly and concisely and clearly I express these ideas, the better I will present the book as a market object. And so there's no way around it, right? In arguing against the commodification of the self, if I do it really well, myself will be commodified even more. And there is no way out of that. Do you feel conflicted by that? Of course. I feel... Very conflicted, but I don't feel constrained by the internet because my strategy for so to answer to actually answer your question, <laughs> the way that I think about personal branding is to not think about how I'm presenting myself at all on the internet and hope that however I'm doing it is okay. To me, the only way, like, I relate to the internet. I had a sort of recalibration a couple of years ago when I went from editing full time and being on the internet constantly looking at Twitter to check what the news cycle was, like, kind of by requirement, to being a writer. I didn't have to do that anymore. And I said to myself, okay, the only way this is going to be bearable is if your relationship to social media is engineered as much as possible around pleasure. And the only way for me to have a relationship that's structured around pleasure to Twitter is to not think about it. And so for me, I don't feel personally constrained by Twitter because I don't feel much of an obligation to be good (laughs) or smart or to weigh in on anything or to say things because Luckily, I have an actual outlet through my job through which I can try to be, like, calm and reasonable and rational and to think clearly Twitter to me. What do um, you use it for, then? I use it to, I don't know, like, things that I think are funny, songs that I like, (laughs) stupid thoughts, like, stupid jokes. I use it to post links to things I've done. I don't feel constrained by it because of that specific reason, but this keys into something that I wrote in another essay, which is like I went on this reality TV show when I was 16, and I think that all my life I have been drawn to ecosystems that are so fully steeped in self-consciousness that you can't even think about it. There was a review of my book in Slate that put it better than I, these situations that swallow you in an ocean of self-consciousness so that all, and for me, it kind of removes the requirement for calibrate the conscious calibration and it pushes it all subconscious, which isn't necessarily better, but that's how it is for me. But it has scared me promoting the book because it's like, do I have to be careful now?
0: Fuck. (laughs) But what I'm hearing almost, and I think that there are probably a lot of people, specifically our age who feel that, which is that it's automatic to us now because we grew up in that age where these things are automatic. So actually a lot of the... Personal branding, whether it's social media, whether it's being witty on social media, whether it's using it in a specific way, that comes automatically. I see that as pleasurable in itself. Right. Even, you know, I do take a lot of pleasure in being on Twitter, interacting with my friends, like posting a funny meme whatever but that is also stuff that I know that in some ways furthers my career of course or or, or helps in some way and I don't do it because of that but I'm aware it does it of course and I also think this is another thing that I write about
1: in the book but there's a reason why women tend to be so good at this because the internet generalizes a condition that women have had to live with all their lives it's like that John Berger ways of seeing thing where a, a woman is conscious from the time she's a child basically that people are judging her people are grading her against this sort of spectrum of appeal and her life will be better at the higher she grades. And women are so conscious of their self-presentation and how it directly affects the way that the world will treat them. You know, like I think I was aware from the second I started in elementary school that things would go easier for me if people liked me and they thought I was cute and they thought I was like bright, but also funny and also not too whatever. And so, yeah, this instinct of self-calibration, automatic self-calibration, the internet makes everyone do it, but women have always had to do it forever. Women have had to be like exquisitely self-conscious of how they are in a way that for me has long, it's it's been natural, you know, I'm doing air quotes, like it's been completely subconscious basically since I was in high school because it's just been a blanket requirement for so long. And the, like someone asked me at a book event a couple of weeks ago, they were like, I've noticed something about your book where the harshest things you say, you try to twist them like with a joke. And I was like, I'm sure that's automatic because I,
0: well, I think women are used to having right. to kind of self-moderate and exactly. to kind of couch. It's like the shit sandwich. Yeah. You know, you're so used to doing that. And, you know, there's that thing of when you send emails, especially in kind of like big corporate yeah. offices. Thank where you, where you so much. Yeah, if, if you wouldn't mind, please. When actually what you want to say is, can you do your fucking job? Like- I know, actually. So this was like a huge thing for me after I stopped
1: working in women's media. One of the things that I found so irritating was the fact that we didn't have as big of a budget as if this website was run by men. We would have a much bigger budget. I couldn't send people to go report things the way that I wanted, you know, I was underpaying people and I couldn't do anything about it because I was also underpaid. And this was like this very small blog called The Hairpin that I used to edit. And even at Jezebel, it was like this. And I couldn't pay people what they deserved to be paid. And I would compensate by sending thousand word edit notes and getting on the phone with people and being like, I love this so much. Like, let's get a drink when you're in New York, you know. And at the same time that I felt really... I love being able to do that, and I love the relationships, but it's like with anything about being a woman, I've got to ramp down my exclamation points. And when I left women's media, I started trying to be more curt in my emails just because I don't want this perpetual escalation of just so much politeness till – I wanted to be able to send an email that was like, can you get this back to me? No exclamation points. No, like, thank you so much. Like, I wanted that to be acceptable as like, you know, I value you. You know,
0: I love you. But then I I can totally understand why you did feel kind of the subconscious urge to do that because when you're not able to show someone you value them in the kind of monetary sense oh yeah had to do with I, I wanted know, that's yeah like part payment exactly or part apology no absolutely you know and I completely understand that and it's like well actually if someone's being very well paid it's like well that's the transaction right so we can keep this as a more professional thing right. and I, I think that is something that I notice now a lot because I you know, I'm freelance, you know, I get like brands or PRs reaching out to me. Some of them are great, but some of them are also wanting me to do work for them, but to not pay for it. And I'm like, it's, well, cr- it's a brand. So yeah, it's actually like open, open your checkbook. There is a lot of like faux friendship. Yeah. I think in those reach outs when I prefer just straight professionalism. Totally. Here's I like people the to say what they want. Yeah. And, and you know, actually, and it's from working together that maybe this kind of friendship or at least respect my yeah. kind of build, but I don't, like those approaches straight either. off the bat to anyone who's listening
1: I've begun more recently to experience this as a thing and I find it really like simply wild you know like a brand reaching out and they're like oh like we are so excited to give you an opportunity to participate in this massive ad campaign
0: for free you know and I'm like absolutely not dude it's like look like, hell no <laughs> I want to actually that kind of brings me quite neatly onto another topic I want to talk about which is influencer culture which mm. again I think is something that kind of weaves its way through again a lot of the essays in the book and stuff that you've written online and earlier you said that women are kind of inherently better at this kind of self yeah, calibration yeah women run the influencer and, world yeah exactly they make more money yeah. in it and Poor then i wonder and i want yeah, i know like the, the top three um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i wonder whether and i wanted to ask you whether you think that because there is also so much criticism around the influencer world which yeah. i have absolutely participated in and continue to participate in yeah. both as an influencer, an exclamation marks, but also as a, yeah. as a critic. <laughs> so yeah. I'm literally just a massive hypocrite. But I sometimes wonder whether there is so much criticism of that economy and of that culture because it is dominated by women. Of course. And it's women who win at it.
1: Yeah, I absolutely think so. I mean, I think these things are all tied together in the way that, I think a paradigm in which selfhood is like every inch of your selfhood can and should and will be monetized is absolutely worth criticizing, as is the fact that that kind of economy, you know, whose bodies have always been monetized from the beginning, you know, it's women, right? Like and also who, it privileges
0: certain types of bodies. Over.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. It's a tricky thing, right? Like I, I say in the book that I think that trolls are one of the reasons that trolls hate women so much. Like it's, you know, it's of course, it's the bedrock of sexism and male power that they've been living in for centuries. But it's it's also, it isn't right. It, it truly is ugly to have an internet that's built around the performances of identity and mass appeal. There's an instinct in that that's pushing against something that needs to be pushed against, which is this, like you know, impossibly transparent panopticon of you know monetized identity. Like it is a bad paradigm. They're just pushing against it in the worst way possible. And so I often think that about influencers. I prefer to think about the influencer world as like, you know, each individual person is, you know, working within it. You can't really critique the whole thing, right? Because there are people like Naomi Klein is, you know, an influencer, right? And it's like, (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. I wonder whether she should feel about that. But but that's, the, it's true. Right, it's like true. It's like the influence.
1: idea of having influence, right? The spectrum of, you know, how you got a platform, how you're using it. You know, it's it's wildly different.
0: It's wildly it's different. Wildly yeah, different.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I think that people do have a reflexive distaste against it, partly because we love to just in general calculate the exact worth of a woman and then also rip it to shreds. Like there, there is a thing about our culture that still loves to venerate and denigrate women simultaneously with everything. I don't think it's actually talked about enough how much, let's say, like Instagram influencing is dominated by women because it's one of the most – for as much press as all of these things have gotten – I do think that's it's really, it's not talked about enough, mostly because we all just kind of know it instinctively.
0: Yeah, that's true, actually.
1: And then you get just ordinary people who are kind of rehearsing these mechanisms for free in perpetuity in hopes that it might one day pay off. And in a way that I, it's strange to realize, you know, like I have been a part of that too. You know, I, I think that now my Twitter, for example, is a professional asset. But for a long time, I was just almost rehearsing the fact that it would be. And... I like Twitter because it's like a, it's a searchable archive. Yeah. <laughs> so no, like I, mean, I, I can search my name in a word and I'd be like, well, have I been thinking about, you know, I do that like Jay Hall in 2013, you know, and like. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the thing I always, I mean, I spend more time on Twitter than I do on Instagram, which is not a good thing. I just spend too much time on both yeah. actually. But the thing that I always say that, And I've also been incredibly lucky that somehow I've managed to avoid the abuse that a lot of women writers and and, and women writers who are black seem to get. Like, I've had surprisingly little of it. So for me, it's almost entirely a pleasurable experience, which I think is quite rare. But I always say that the reason I value it is because of how much I learn from it and Mm -hmm. the conversations. And it's, it's, you know, it's searchable. And if you could search Instagram captions, maybe I would be more into it, if that makes sense, but it doesn't work that way. So I find it.
1: Yeah. I love Instagram because I only, I mean, I only follow, I follow national parks. I follow accounts that post pictures of the deep sea and space. And I follow my friends. And I basically don't follow anyone else, and so I love it.
0: <laughs> That's a really good strategy. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm constantly having to think about how I can kind of cull that. But I want to move on and talk about one of my favorite topics to talk about generally. But yeah. again, it's something you talked about within the book, which is girl boss culture <laughs> and kind of commodified feminism and all that sort of thing. And actually, the first thing I want to ask you about that is that I've noticed in the interviews and you know, like features and press around this book that topic and the essay the seven scams yeah. of generation a lot of coverage has latched onto insights about huh. contemporary mainstream feminism and I think it, that for me or maybe it's because I'm looking for it but I think it kind of crops up with a frequency that probably outstrips most other topics in the book even the kind of very sexy topics like drugs or yeah. the internet I wonder why you think that is like what is the attraction mm. in dissecting and analyzing mainstream feminism? which I'm about to force you to do. <laughs> well, I so ever
1: since I was at Jezebel, it has been, I've been living again, like as with being alive today, you know, living at the center of this contradiction that you're benefiting from a system that is bad, you know, and I think that's like, it's what all of these conversations are circling around, right? And, and like, what do we do then? And I'm, I try to make the argument in one of the essays, it's like, just accepting that as a kind of baseline condition. And then it's like, where do we go from here? Right. And so at Jezebel, for example, I would feel incredibly lucky that I knew that I had a job because feminism was marketable. And at the same time, I wanted to assert my right to resist what that meant is a dove ad ever possibly, you know, radical, like these no Photoshop campaigns. Like what do they actually mean? I would write about this. Sometimes I would critique market feminism and I would always be a little scared. I would always expect some pushback and sometimes I would get it. But often I think I'm voicing, like, I think that one of the reasons that people have talked about this, you know, the, the me talking about how girl boss culture is bullshit is because we all know it and many of us participate in it or benefit from it in some way. And yet it's the sort of realization that's been rising to the surface for the last, like, six years, like, basically post-lean-in. There has been a mounting critique of a feminism that is built around making people as powerful as possible, you know, starting at the five per- top 5%, you
0: know? Trickle-down feminism.
1: Yeah, yeah. Femi- like, and I say, like, it's this idea that like the most progressive thing we can imagine is like a woman in like a really good pantsuit like on stage at a conference, you know, with a bold lip, commanding applause for her startup about tampons that also give back, you know? And it's like that, I was so aware for a long time that for me, feminism means universal childcare and like, you know, universal healthcare in the States and, you know, a higher minimum wage. Yeah. yeah, reproductive rights. It's not a coincidence that I think you've had this like utter marketability and popularity of feminism and this idea that, I mean, the girl boss, the, the term itself is you know, it's so infantilizing, it's a nightmare. It's not a coincidence that we have the rise of the most marketable feminism that we've ever had. And at the same time, reproductive rights in the states have been rolled back every year. Since 2010, it's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse.
0: What do you mean by that? What's the link between those two, do you think?
1: I think that there's a way in which, and I think the internet's a huge part of this, where inequality is adjudicated through cultural criticism, you know, or there's a way in which inequality is clocked and judged by the realm of culture rather than the realm of policy. And again, this is something that I'm a part of because I write mostly about culture. But I think that there has been this idea that women are not only ascendant, but extremely, you know, that women are threatening male power, right? You, you saw it. And then meanwhile, politically, in a lot of ways, women are losing ground. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. I wonder then, do you feel like mainstream feminism has lost its way? I wouldn't say that. The reason why I wouldn't say
1: that is because I don't think that mainstream feminism is an entity, right? I do think that, you know, feminism at its most marketable, this sort of market, girl girlboss, post-lean-in, conference-forward, Instagram-forward feminism, that is kind of an entity. But feminism itself, wonderfully, is not, right? And I think that that, to me, is one of the things that I also chafed against at Jezebel was this idea that mounting a feminist critique of feminism would be destructive in some way, right? We would get this idea all the time, this criticism all the time, that if we criticized a successful woman, we were being anti-feminist. And that always seemed to me to be so self-evidently empty and wrong. And now I think that that is... Melting away. I think we understand more. There doesn't seem to be this undercurrent in feminist discourse for me anymore, where disagreement is seen as dangerous. I think or that,
0: disloyal to the cause or
1: disloyal. To me, it, it's much more obvious now that feminism is not a thing that can lose its way. Because I do so market feminism absolutely, but it never had its way. <laughs> um, feminism at large, I think. You know, basically, I think service workers in Las Vegas have been mounting some of the most successful. Union organizing campaigns in the States, and that feminism is not losing its way at all, right? And I think about things like that as much a part of what I think of contemporary feminism as the girl boss stuff.
0: I'm glad you brought that up about sort of critiques of feminism, because I was actually gonna ask you, because I think something that I've noticed in the years that I've followed both your work but also have been reading Jezebel, is that Jezebel used to do something, or still does do something, where when they would kind of maybe write articles kind of exposing shady female founders who had maybe kind of violated worker rights or who were just kind of full of shit, but also using feminism as a kind of marketing technique. Like that thinks woman? Yeah, I was specifically (laughs) thinking of thinks, like the she She What a nightmare. And, you know, also I think Nasty Gal, Nasty Gal had that um, with Sophia Maruso and there were a lot of stories around worker rights and all that sort of thing. And I think what I want to talk about is the kind of, there's a very popular rhetoric around women supporting other women, which is something that I also believe in. Like I'm a big champion of other women. That's kind of what I endeavour to do with my work, whether it's really overtly by like making an introduction or by writing an article that I think might help other women kind of illuminate certain things. But sometimes I wonder whether that's not just another obligation that women have that men don't, which is that we have this like loyalty to our sex and that is more work and labor that we have to do and not something that men have to consider.
1: I think about this the way I think about a lot of things where if the obligation comes from the outside in, it's bad, but if it comes from the inside out, it's good. If that makes sense. Like where there was a, a thing several years back where everyone seemed to be writing essays about how they were only going to read women for a year, you know? And I was like, that seemed so full of shit, even though it's like, great, you're reading a lot of women. Like I tend to read more women than men. I tend to listen to, I have always been attracted to women's voices. And I mean, literal women's voices. If you look at my Spotify, you know, it's, it's mostly women. I I tend to just like reading women and talking to women and being interested. And I think that, you know, the idea, I think I also want to be, a good member of just a community of people that tends to be kind of centered around women. And that desire to me is separate from the idea, the top-down idea that all women should love all women because it's a feminist need, right? I do think that it's a trap. It's sort of like the trap that feminism set where it's like, it's really important and feminist to believe that everyone's beautiful, (laughs) Yes. What it does is it reifies this idea of being likable and being supported and being beautiful by, you know, being considered beautiful by everyone. It sort of makes that into a political good when, in fact, the real political good is freedom. (laughs) And it's the de-escalation of all these obligations. And it's and it's no top-down need to be beautiful or to be loved and supported and to love and support other women, right? It, it would be the freedom to have these things come from the inside instead of the out. And yeah, so I, I have very strong
0: feelings about no, that. No, and that's something that you talked about in the book. I really love that section, actually, because it's something that I've been thinking about. Female beauty is like, why is it so important to be beautiful? Right,
1: this trap of, of that it's really politically important to consider everyone beautiful. It's like, no, 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 the real freedom. And the same thing, it's really politically important to... Support all women and to build them up. And it's like, what I want is the freedom for beauty not to be as important as it is. And I say in the book, I think it's like what I want is a freedom where you don't have to be constantly running this calculation of like worth and capability by monitoring like exactly how worthy and good and supportable any woman is at any given time for that not to need to be such a personal feeling act where it's like, who gives a shit what I think about this woman? Because that's how I feel about men. (laughs) Like who gives a shit what I think about this powerful man? Like truly who gives a shit, you know? And I think that that is the freedom that I want. of course, in order for that to be true, all of these structural things need to be true too. Like there's a reason why beauty has become a political good is because women lack other avenues to make money, you know, where beauty is monetized for women in a way that it's not for men. And so of course it becomes this politically valued thing. Like what I want requires that freedom to have that freedom. We would need a lot of structural things to be in place that aren't, but it is still what I think about is what I want.
0: Definitely. The thing that I found really interesting and that I feel like a lot of analysis of like, late-stage capitalism and mainstream feminism, this like, economy of the self is missing in the kind of wider media culture, is that in your book, you examined really, really honestly the role that you play in these structures. Oh, yeah. Partly I think it's because often writers who write about this sort of thing have, you know, like 1,200 words on the internet to write about it. They don't have the luxury of a book length, you know, kind of word count to play with, which I'm currently writing a book and realising what a relief it is to be able to go off and meander on a little tangent and give this little bit of context that I know that if I was writing online, the editor would cut it immediately. Yeah. And I'm like, I can put that and
1: in there. And even knowing that like not everyone that reads the book is going to like the tangent, but you're like, who cares? It's my book, baby. Yeah, exactly. It's
0: really <laughs> no, involved. I found that so
1: pleasurable.
0: Yeah. they're <laughs> probably going to cut it all during edits. But um, <laughs> When
1: I was reading my audiobook, I was like, shit, I should have cut some of <laughs> this. <laughs> it's
0: like a lot of run-on sentences No, but here. it's really good. It, it is a luxury, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a real luxury. And something you said in one of the essays is that to quote I am complicit no matter what I do do you really believe that like do you not think think there is any way resisting and it's kind of that quote I can't remember who said it but there is no ethical consumption under capitalism which is something I like to like trot out when I'm doing something really bad, like yeah. shopping at like Topshop and yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, owned right. by Philip Green. And I'm like, oh, well, right, right, right. you know, I look fab and yeah, there's no ethical yeah. consumption like, anyway. <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah. I don't need like, to bother. was made <laughs> exactly. by a like, child like, in a sweatshop, yeah. but you know, yeah. there is no ethical consumption. Yeah. Like I kind of trot that out as a joke, but... Yeah. To what extent do you actually think that's the case?
1: I 100% believe that's the case, but... That's
0: depressing.
1: Yeah, but I think we're ta- we're talking about the same thing in general, right? Where to me, I think what I'm trying to work my way towards is a state of understanding that being complicit, being implicated by these systems doesn't have to be... I think what I'm trying to get to is a point in my life where I can just understand this as a baseline condition of my creation and of my life and where it doesn't have to be something I have to continually get in sort of a hamster wheel of self-flagellation about, that I need to understand it as just a fundamental condition, and the question is, what do you do from here? The quote that you read, it was about the girl boss feminism stuff. That's true, that's true. And I think that understanding that has led me to push against it in a way that... Ditto. Right. And it's like the fact that I'm still entrenched within these systems and still my ability to be successful is related to these things, ability to be successful. To me, that doesn't mean anything more than it means, right? It's it's just a fact. And the question is just like, how can we use, it, it's sort of, I talk about this idea of the cyborg in a different chapter, right? It's like, if you just understand that the conditions that formed you are bad, <laughs> then it's sort of, this pleasure of how then can we wrest as much agency as possible from it and understand that, you know, the fact that I'm implicated doesn't mean anything. Like what I do doesn't basically doesn't mean anything anyway.
0: And those actions <laughs> are often smaller, I find actually, because yes, I still, you know, I run a community for working women and I try and calibrate it in such a way that I feel, and you know, it's probably something I was guilty of when I first started it three years ago, but definitely now I try and run it in such a way that, I feel like it has integrity, and like I don't say yes to whatever shampoo brand wants to talk about empowering women right. because that, to me, feels like the thing that is within my control.
1: Right, um, but but also right, it's like with what you do. It's it's I would imagine that it's also like, can I do more with this shampoo? Like, can I take this shampoo money and turn it into something that actually does seed the undermining of this paradigm?
0: No, there's also that. Right? As well. Like, it's like yeah. I very. Like, consciously think about the paid work I do especially if it's for like brands yeah. or big corporates is subsidizing the free work exactly. that I do whether it's like doing something for a charity consulting right. pro bono or mentoring or something like that I very much think of it as like this has to pay for that right and it has to even out somewhere because yeah. you can't just take well I mean you can and and that maybe, and also it's not my place to say how people kind of decide to make a living but for me it makes totally. me uncomfortable enough that I have to really reckon with it on a daily basis. And yeah. I think my friends, probably a couple of them particularly, probably sick of me like running everything I do past them by this like feminist metric. I'm like, is this okay? Like, is this not okay? And then we have a really long debate and they're like, I think you can do it. It's fine.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's what I'm just trying to establish with th- this understanding of my kind of inescapable implication in these systems is that I do want to be as thoughtful as I can. I want that thought to lead me to being as thoughtful as I can and also freeing me from the, I think one of the things that I was writing this book to get me towards is a reminder that in actuality, like I was writing it about the self in context of all these systems and I'm trying to get towards a daily understanding of the fact that it's the systems that matter, not anything that I do. You know, at the same time that everything in me leads me to want to be as accountable and careful as I can. But I'm also trying to have that countervailing thought that, you know, as with so many things, all all these systems that are corrosive and in
0: crisis, individual action really is not the game, you know? Yeah, Um, totally. Okay, I want to change tack a little bit and ask you a few questions about your writing process. Because I know a lot of people listening to this will be really curious as to kind of, I don't want to say how you get it done, but how you approach your work. I mean, first of all, actually, something I'm really intrigued about is what made you decide that essays, a collection of essays, was the best format for what you wanted to discuss with this book? Because, I mean, it's it's nonfiction, but you can kind of approach that in lots of different ways. And I think essays are a very specific type of format. So Mm -hmm. what made you think that was best for this?
1: When I worked at Jezebel twice a year, I would get so obsessed with something that I would just bang out like 6,000 words on it. And it was a specific kind of essay. I would start with a question and write my way into what felt like an object that I would just rotate and look at from many different sides and not arrive at a conclusion almost, you know? Dream. <laughs> yeah. Every now and again, there was something that I wanted to look at like that, to just, that I had really strong feelings about, often really strong conflicting feelings about, and was really fascinated by, and felt that I could only write about it at this very extreme length. And basically by the, I mean, I wrote this book because I had nine of these things, and there was no other way to do it other than that kind of an essay. And there's no other real place to, I can't run those at the New Yorker really. And I, I also just wanted it to be completely under my control. So a book was the only way to do that. There is a bit of a through line with this book, but there's not... I wanted it to be really intense dives into one subject after another.
0: And they are intense, actually. As yeah, so intense. I was rereading it yesterday. It's crazy. It's crazy that people are reading yeah. it. <laughs> I'm brilliant. shocked. But I was like, wow, you really go deep on these topics. So yeah. I think, what chapter was I rereading yesterday? I just remember thinking there is this is not a skim... Kind of, yeah, these are 10,000 words, pretty intense. Yeah, like exactly. There's a whole like chunk here, which I'm like, this is a thousand words on like Greek mythology at yeah, least. And I'm yeah. like, wow, that is like, was that one of the tangents? No, yeah. but it's like, it's really, really deep, and you come away feeling like you really. Have like exhausted a topic in a yeah. really kind of positive way, and I think that's something that right I wanted to exhaust a topic, yeah. Because
1: I, I, I mean, often what I write, I write to rid myself of that calculus we all run in our head about like ethics and everyday living, and and one of the ways to smooth that out for myself is just to write my way through till I've thought through everything I can on this topic, and been like, well, did my best to figure it out, and now I have to stop running that calculation and you know do something else
0: in New York because I mean I think the brilliant thing as well as as a writer you've also been an editor which I think obviously gives you like a really unique insight into what makes for good writing but specifically for an essay format what makes a good essay mm, that's like, a good what, what almost like it's I don't want to make it formulaic but like what do you kind of have yeah. to tick off to be like this is a good essay this is achieving what an essay is supposed to achieve
1: This is such a good question. No one's asked me this, like ever. I I think about this a lot. So I would take pitches from people, from strangers. And one of the things that I did for... Years was I would publish a lot of first-time writers, you know, most of them young, but, you know, all over the spectrum. And I loved, like, what a great feeling to open your email. And among all the PR pitches for, you know, empowering shampoo lines or whatever, you would get just sometimes when someone would send you a piece of writing, and I would be so excited to find an email that person would be like, please let me publish this. And I think that one of the things that I look for is you can tell within a first paragraph what I look for is someone that is not wasting the reader's time, that isn't doing any of that throat clearing, the sort of, you look for voice in an essay, you look for somebody that that just sounds like themselves, right? Doesn't sound like an idea of what an essay should sound like, someone that sounds like themselves, And that I think is the number one thing that I want in an essay. I want someone's voice to pick me up, you know, and put me in their palm and just walk me through whatever. I want to feel securely held in someone's voice. And my voice is, is very, it's kind of, it's very personality forward. It's kind of intense. And I think you can have this feeling with people whose voices are like softer and gentler and, and you can still feel equally as riveted and held. And the spectrum of how people would work you into an essay with their voice was one of the things that I loved the most editing. There's this sense in essays, especially there was this sense in women's media, I would say maybe five years ago, really intensely, especially with personal essays, there would be this sort of fixity to it. Or this is with essays in general, where people would, my least favorite thing with essays is when people start and end the essay on the same idea. I think that with some things that's appropriate, with some ideas where you're you're just needing to hammer one really, really important point start to finish. But mostly, I think you write an essay to get your, you think through something to get yourself somewhere new, right? And so that sense of movement is what I was always looking for. And what I also loved in essays is this idea, this ability to not need to vindicate. I was always looking for personal essays that didn't also need to function as defenses of the woman's actions. <laughs> I wanted an essay that was the internal question was something more interesting than am I good or bad (laughs) that often seemed to be like I think I'm also looking for an interesting internal question that the writer is asking and it often on the internet for a while there years back would often just seem to
0: be like how good am I or how bad am I and like I mean personally for me essays that I like to read are things that you know if it's a personal essay it has to tell you something more about the wider world unless you're Michelle Obama, who I'm like, yes, I will happily just read yeah. just about your life yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, just yeah. about you. There aren't that many people who am like, I just want to know the ins and outs of your life. I want to yeah. hear what that says about me. And I'm like, what, what do your experiences say about the way I experience the world? Yeah. And, that sort of
1: thing. and I think this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I've, had to make this more conscious recently because I think it's something that I do automatically, but I've been thinking a lot about like one question that people often have, have been asking me is like, how do you know when to put yourself in, you know, something or, and, and I'm like, I don't know, but I think it's because I, I'm interested in myself. Obviously we're all naturally interested in ourselves, <laughs> but I'm really interested in myself as the entity That has allowed me entry into the world, right? It's like I'm interested in myself as a conduit for what I learn. And so in that way, everything that I write, I mean, I naturally insert myself into things because often I find that my firsthand experience is, it is the way that you experience the world, right? But it's like the self to me is interesting only as an avenue. And it's extremely interesting as that avenue, but it's not interesting as a, as a thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. And how do you make sure that you're improving as a writer mm. in terms of, you know, kind of over the course of your career and however many years you've been writing for? What are the kind of personal signs this. of, oh, God, I have no idea. Well, you just know, right? You just you just learn to. How do I think about it? I mean, one thing is reading back. Old work and be like, oh, I can be oh, yeah. better than that, and yeah, that yeah, feels yeah. amateurish. Like weirdly, I like looking back at stuff that I felt proud of at the time and thinking that yeah, feels kind of amateurish. That yeah, yeah, exactly. I always I'm had like, that feeling. I'm like, I didn't take that yeah, up. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> and you also be like, oh, like, yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, she tried. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Honestly, I feel that a lot. Yeah, of same. <laughs> but I think no, you answer first okay. because I asked you <laughs> first.
1: I so I. One of the reasons that I don't think about audience, and this might go back to that question about self-presentation in general, I don't often think about people reading my work because I am so, 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 so tough like basically what I do every time I write, and I think I've been doing this for a while, but it's it's literally, and I think this might've been something that got even further entrenched in me when I tried to write fiction for a long time. I was in this grad school program for fiction writing. As a writer, like one of the things that I do in my process is just go literally word by word and ask myself, does this word mean anything? What is this sentence communicating? Is every sentence actually saying something? And it's such a basic, stupid thing, but that is actually how I self-edit. It's just a truly word-by-word, sentence-by-sentence, you know, is this phrase here for the sound of it, or is this phrase here for actual information being conveyed? And just making every sentence jump over the bar of, is this actually conveying information? I think that inevitably makes you get better and better as a writer as you go. Just requiring yourself to not bullshit for your own sake. You know, I, like I think of my own attention as hard to hold for myself and my own bullshit bar. I would hope it gets higher and higher in life. And I'm hoping that I just, yeah, I'm making this motion of a sheep jumping over a hedge. But that's how I think of it. It's like every sentence has to jump over the
0: head, like the bullshit hedge. And if it snags... It has to go. Yeah, that is such a brilliant metric, and I'm literally going to like run home right at the moment. I'm going to run home. Yeah, like, it's interesting. Just making, metric. Making yes. every
1: sentence just just see if it works, and and often it will, but it,
0: like often it won't. <laughs> But I think that also takes a lot of discipline as a writer, because I often read stuff where I'm like, this was self-indulgent. Like, you know, I mean, my own work, yes, but also in reference to reading other people's work. And I'm like, that was quite a self-indulgent disclosure or sentence or line or paragraph. Or why did you say that? That kind of felt quite like he was sort of self-aggrandizing as opposed to taking the reader somewhere new. Right.
1: That is the calculus for... Knowing how to write about yourself, this is especially something that I work over often. Anytime I'm writing about myself, I will always find sentences to scrub out where it's like the purpose of a sentence about me has to communicate something about the idea I'm writing about. And there will always be some sentences in there that, that are me being like, Aren't I interesting? <laughs> and those sentences have to go. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, surely this will not pass the same bar. Like, I'm sure that there are. You could read my writing and think that I am still just writing to be like, aren't I interesting? But that is a trap that I continually fall in. I think it's hard when you are writing something where you are the lens into the subject mm-hmm. to not let a couple of those things slip. You know, it's like, aren't I cute? Like, isn't this fun fact about me? And then, I, and then that's the thing that I'm like, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it.
0: If something like makes you feel kind of like smug, I don't know, yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah. If like, something makes you feel kind of like, smug, you're, yeah, like, you're, you're like, like, God, you're I can't like, wait cute. people to read that line. Yeah. You're like, it's gotta go. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it's
0: such a I can't wait for people to find this out about me. It's right. Like, that right. Has it's like,
1: isn't this cute about me? Like that <laughs> that particular feeling, it's like, it feels good to write it in the first draft and then you got to cut it. Yeah.
0: yeah, I know sometimes you just write in the first draft, even though at the back of your
1: mind, you know, I'm like, I that's know.
0: that's not going to make the but cut. You but you got to see it not working to know that it
1: doesn't work. Yeah, I'm
0: it think. has to jar enough yeah. with you and, you. and
1: I think about that with beginnings, like with these essays, there were so many ideas swirling around my head, like, you know, those cartoon birds in a circle. And I was like, how am I going to grab one and like, put it on paper? And I would just write my way through a lot of bad intros and try to get to one where someone would feel held as quickly as possible and i think that is an exercise that i've been consciously trying to do and actually blogging was a really good warm up for that because you are often writing about stuff that's dumb and doesn't matter but you're still trying to participate in the attention economy in a way that you know retains people's attention i think that was good training in a
0: way mm-hmm. Well, dear, I think that might be all we have time for because I can see your publicist hovering outside. But thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much. And that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But for more career inspiration and information in the meantime, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegiwagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review as it really does help boost the podcast enormously. See you next week.